Greetings, this is Pastor Chuck McGaffey coming to you with another podcast from First Baptist Church in Madison, North Carolina. Today is the uh, time we worship coming up on the fifth Sunday of Lent, which happens to be on April 3rd, 2022 this year. The passage of scripture I'm speaking from today is Philippians, the third chapter, verses 4b through 14. Sometimes I have to laugh when we talk about scriptures in increments like that, but uh, this is not the very beginning of that verse, but uh, it is in the middle, so it uh, refers to it as uh, B. It's not all that important, just a little bit of trivia there. Here it goes. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, Paul writes, if anyone could, Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest observance to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling me. It is good, human, and I think a holy practice that we routinely pause to recollect and remember who we are. By doing this, we can also think about who we may yet be. I sometimes marvel on Sunday mornings when we come together, as we do for this thing called worship. I am amazed because this thing we do makes absolutely no sense to some people. In fact, most people. Just think about it for a moment. We meet together every week, taking time off from our already shrinking schedules to gather with one another in a large building where we sit most of the time. Sometimes we stand and sing songs not found in any popular channel on the radio. At other times we say are are led in prayers, prayers addressing an invisible but present deity, at least we believe that to be true. 
Someone then reads the words from an ancient book and another goes into an extended commentary on the book's contents, offering an explanation of its words, illustrating its meaning, and making some application, including a challenge to change. And then we go home, but before too long, we will come back again to do it all over together. Pretty weird, huh? This thing we call worship may be a time that is largely misunderstood by outside observers. And every now and then, I think we should pause and consider how strange this hour we share might appear to some folks. Some people might think you're crazy. Others might think you need help. They might not understand. What is it about this experience that is so important to us? Could it be that there really is a God who speaks to us from the ages who can and does take the words that were so meaningful to our ancestors and speak just as meaningfully to us today? I think so, and I hope you do too. Let's look at some of those words written long ago by a Jewish follower of the one called Christos. We pick up his thoughts in mid-expression in a letter written to a fledgling church in the Macedonian city of Philippi. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Young Saul was a precocious child as a Jew, growing up as a racial and ethnic minority in a Romanized city of Tarsus. Saul knew what it was to be Jewish. There is a certain quality that being outnumbered brings to your sense of self. Saul's Jewishness wasn't just a go-along-to-get-along-with-what-the-crowd-was-doing kind of religion. On the contrary, it was a thoughtful, frequently counter-cultural response to the Gentile culture that surrounded him. This single factor undoubtedly made Saul who he would become. As a young man, he chose the faith of his ancestors— the heritage of Abraham and Isaac, Moses and Joshua. Yes, it was true. If Saul had chosen to become Hellenized, that is a product of the Greco-Roman culture that dominated the life of Tarsus, 
It would have been easy, natural, and profitable for him. Such an accommodation would have made him popular and wealthy, but young Saul chose a different course. Somewhere, somehow, along the way, he became a citizen of Rome, a privilege highly desirable in a world run by the Romans. We do not know how this came about. Was it passed down from father to son? Perhaps it was a gift to Saul by a local magistrate. We do not know. What we do know is that his status as a Roman citizen had no bearing upon his religious convictions. To hear him describe himself was a powerful statement of where his convictions and values emerged. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. His guidance, his inner script set a course for his life. We all have some inner script our own internal resume we carry around in our souls. It attempts to answer the question, who am I and why should you care? Some of us will point to our birth. We might be proud of where we were born or the circumstances surrounding our entry into the world. I've found that with Baptist folks, I gain an extra bit of credibility by telling them that the first hands laid upon me in this world were Baptist hands, and not only that, but a Baptist missionary's hands. Dr. Paul O'Neill delivered me into this world on August 5, 1957. He had been a medical missionary commissioned by the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. I suppose I could also add that with that birth slap on my fanny, it was also a Baptist that first made me cry. Saul, of course, had more than a birth identity. His pedigree also continued into his formation, so much so that he could call himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. Think about that. What could Saul be thinking of in this self-description? Well, he tells us just what it is that makes him so superlative. First, he was an ardent proponent of the law. We are talking more than simply a legal code here. When Saul tells us that he is a Pharisee, he is indicating that he was a most vigorous supporter of the covenant between God and humanity. The law represented the way people approached God, knew God, and honored God. It was the party of the Pharisees who were most devoted to the law, not only imposing the strictest standard in their lives, but also insisting that other Jews did the same. You know, and I know, that there is a particular brand of righteousness that is, well, excessive. It is not content with being good for goodness' sake, but takes upon itself to be the enforcer of the standard of goodness for others. This kind of goodness loves to wag a finger and say things like, shame on you to others. I fear we are all guilty of doing this from time to time, but let's face it, some have come to believe that criticizing others into the kingdom of God is their spiritual gift. Well, Saul may have been so infected. We can see just how in his next brag. Paul boasts of being zealous. To be zealous is to be particularly enthusiastic about something to such a degree that it changes your worldview. 
Have you seen any zealous basketball fans lately? Well, look around. They're wearing their team colors. Their cars are decorated with license plates, bumper stickers, and flags. Lately, they have been thinking about almost nothing except their team. They have planned their activities and perhaps even their friendships around those who understand. And rivals must be vanquished, hopefully, by their team. They are fans. They are zealous, at least until the end of March Madness. Saul was zealous all the time, and a new rival, at least in his eyes, has arisen to challenge his faith. They were the gathered ones who followed Jesus, whom they considered to be the Messiah. And some of those folks, like Saul, who had tried so hard to toe the line of the law, were going over to the church. As a mark of his seal, the young righteous man from Tarsus took it upon himself to do everything within his power to destroy this new expression of faith, which he viewed as a threat. In doing this, he saw nothing amiss. He so sincerely believed he was doing the will of God that he finally described himself as righteous and blameless. His birth, his zeal, his self-righteousness was for Saul the facade he presented for the entire world to see. It coated his soul and hardened into a protective armor that would not let others in or the living being who he really was come out. But it also did something else. It also kept God out. Then the unexpected happened, and in a most unexpected way. Have you ever been on a road trip to a destination you've never traveled to before when it dawns upon you that you are going the wrong way? Ever notice that none of the other drivers or passengers speeding along in the other vehicles notice that anything is wrong? But you know, you know that you cannot keep going the way you are going. You might even think for a split second, maybe if I really try hard, I can get there this way. But then you realize that you have to exit and turn your car in another direction. I think it must have been like that for Saul, too. His life, which was seemingly built on God, had nothing to do with God. He was empty. He was lonely. He was frightened. He was a fraud. In 1966, a high school teacher in Chicago, Illinois, wrote a poem that I think describes Saul's and our human condition. It is entitled, Please Hear What I'm Not Saying. Listen to it and see if you don't agree that it describes our own internal prisons as well as how the love of another can make us free. Please hear what I'm not saying. Don't be fooled by me. Don't be fooled by the mask I wear, for I wear a mask, a thousand masks, masks that I'm afraid to take off, and none of them is me. Pretending is an art that's second nature with me, but don't be fooled. For God's sake, don't be fooled. I give you the impression that I'm secure, that all is sunny and unruffled within me, within as well as without, that confidence is my name and coolness is my game, that the water's calm and I'm in command, and that I need no one, but don't believe me. 
My surface may seem smooth, but my surface is a mask, ever varying and ever concealing. Beneath lies no complacence. Beneath lies confusion and fear and aloneness. But I hide this. I don't want anyone to know it. I panic at the thought of my weakness exposed. That's why I frantically create a mask to hide behind, a nonchalant, sophisticated mask to help me pretend, to shield me from the glance that knows. But such a glance is precisely my salvation, my only hope, and I know it. That is, if it's followed by acceptance, if it's followed by love. It's the only thing that can liberate me from myself, from my own self-built prison walls. From the barriers I painstakingly erect. It's the only thing that will assure me of what I can't assure myself, that I'm really worth something. But I don't tell you this. I don't dare to. I'm afraid to. I'm afraid your glance will not be followed by acceptance, will not be followed by love. I th I'm afraid you'll think less of me, that you'll laugh, and your laugh would kill me. I'm afraid that deep down I'm nothing and that you will see this and reject me. So I play my game, my desperate pretending game with a facade of assurance without and a trembling child within. So begins the glittering but empty parade of mask and my life becomes a front. I idly chatter to you in the suave tones of surface talk. I tell you everything that is really nothing and nothing of what's everything of what's crying within me. So when I'm going through my routine, do not be fooled by what I'm saying. Listen carefully and try to hear what I'm not saying, what I'd like to be able to say, what for survival I need to say, but what I can't say. I don't like hiding. I don't like playing superficial phony games. I want to stop playing them. I want to be genuine and spontaneous in me, but you've got to help me. You've got to hold out your hand, even when that's the last thing I seem to want. Only you can wipe away from my eyes the blank stare of the breathing dead. Only you can calm me into aliveness. Each time you're kind and gentle and encouraging, each time you try to understand because you really care, my heart begins to grow wings, very small wings, very feeble wings, but wings. With your power to touch me into feeling, you can breathe life into me. I want you to know that. I want you to know how important you are to me, how you can be a creator, an honest-to-God creator of the person that is me, if you choose to. You alone can break down the wall behind which I tremble. You alone can remove my mask. You alone can release me from my shadow world of panic, from my lonely prison, if you choose to. Please choose to. Do not pass me by. It will not be easy for you. A long conviction of worthlessness builds strong walls. The nearer you approach to me, the blinder I may strike back. It's irrational, but despite what the books say about man, often I'm irrational. I fight against the very thing I cry out for. But I am told that love is stronger than strong walls, and in this lies my hope. Please try to beat down those walls with firm hands, but with gentle hands, for a child is very sensitive. Who am I, you may wonder? I am someone you know very well, for I am every man you meet, and I am every woman you meet. I first heard that poem when I was a teenager. It described how I felt. 
But then I learned the words that Paul had written concerning his life journey. I found a new way of thinking was possible. Forgetting what lies behind us is laying down our mask and being real before God and others. Paul was freed by the love of God through Christ Jesus, and you can be too. What is more, God wants to use you to demonstrate his love to others, others who are just as afraid to show you who they really are. But when you do that as individuals, and when we do that as a community of faith, we can and will press on toward a deeper and a more joy-filled faith. Let us pray. Lord of reality, meet us upon our journey and turn us toward your love. Convince us of our worth before you. Open our eyes to how important we are to the community of faith and to the mission of your kingdom which is coming. And we pray that as we find the love you have for us, that we in turn may demonstrate that love to other human beings. You have placed in our path who are lonely and frightened, angry, and just plain tired. And together, we will forget and press on to a new day. Amen. Well, please let us know that you're listening to this podcast. You can communicate with this church in ways that... Uh, you can find out more about the church, uh, First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. You can also find out uh, more about uh, how you can be part of the family of God. You can contribute by going to our website, www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.weebly.com, and may God give you a blessed week.